0: Okay, so today we're jumping into our final episode in this series on the history of the Christian right. Really hope you enjoyed this one so far. Again, one of my favorite series that we've done in the 11-year-plus history at the end of history, probably just because it's, it's history that I lived through and I was paying attention to at the time. Remember, if you're enjoying this one, you're going to enjoy the new book, Politically Incorrect, Real Faith in an Era of Unreal Politics. You can get that at Amazon if you want to learn more about the book and even get a sneak peek at the the introduction you can see that at the end of net. In the next few weeks i'm going to be releasing a new podcast series on the history of the modern middle east with all the excitement going on over there today it's it's probably beneficial that you get a good grounding on the facts of how we got to where we are today as far as the history of the middle east so that's coming soon watch your podcast feeds for that I think that just about does it. If you've enjoyed this podcast series, please consider sharing it with your friends on social media, on WhatsApp, wherever you you, uh, congregate. Let's go ahead and jump into our finale episode in the history of the Christian right. This is the end of history. A true revolution of values will soon cause us to question The
1: fairness and justice of many of our past and present policies. We believe that peace is at hand. An axis of evil arming to threaten the peace of the world. Democracy and freedom for all. We must choose
0: in this crucial moment of human history. Several of the nation's leading newspapers and magazines from the, well, I've seen it, the New York Times, the Atlantic Magazine, they've all pointed out the almost complete lack of presence for the religious right and religious right issues in this 2016 presidential election. Now, I talked about this a little bit in an article that I posted a couple of weeks ago there at the end of history.net. Until the third presidential debate, if you think about this, it's really, it's really strange. Until that third debate, we had zero mentions of the religious right or issues that are really significant issues for the religious right within this presidential election. Then, I, I guess in the third presidential debate, the uh, the moderator, the Fox News moderator, he asked a question about abortion. But other than that, that was about it. So whether we realize it or not, the presence, the, the influence of the religious or the Christian right in this election, they've been surprisingly absent in 2016. And there's a reason for that. Now a lot of people are saying that this election itself is the end of the religious right. And I'm gonna disagree with that point because I think the end actually came a long time before 2016. And that's what we're gonna look at today in this final episode in the, the series on the history of the religious right. A lot of the time, the greatest vulnerability for a group can be its victories and successes. And when it comes to the history of Christianity, the history of the faith, this that, that fact, that statement really proves true. It seems that whenever Christianity has succeeded to make impact on a large social scale, that's frequently the moment of greatest vulnerability for the faith. Now, we can go all the way back to the early church to see this. The early church was born in the midst of persecution, and that continued for almost 300 years, you know, three centuries. This was a time when people who professed to the Christian faith they were being burned alive. They were being fed to, to lions by the Roman Empire. So there was tre- tremendous, terrific resistance in the world around them. But that was also a time when the church thrived with a really pure, a real, a real uh, formidable Christian faith and lifestyle within the church. Well, then the fourth century comes and the Roman Emperor Constantine, he adopted Christianity for himself and it, the, the religion quickly became the official religion, of the Roman Empire, so the the resistance, resistance ended, but that achievement and that success throughout the the Roman Empire it ended up being one of the biggest detriments to that purity, that sincerity of the faith that had spread across the empire for so long. You know, the religion became a tradition. the the life and purity of the gospel was replaced with politics and with power brokers. And before long, you had this corrupt religion, and the church was dominating every aspect of life in the Christian Roman world. The church had social impact and success, but the faith was compromised, and lives weren't being changed, they weren't being saved anymore. And that's what led us to the Dark Ages. And the only thing that got us out of that was when Martin Luther challenged the social systems through the Reformation. And we can see that pattern repeated over and over again throughout Christian history. Great success and impact in the world by the church ends up leading to a compromise of the spiritual power and substance of the faith. And from my perspective, that's what happened to the Christian right, and that's where our story picks up today. So if you recall in the last episode, the 1990s brought in the the Clinton White House this was a blow to the Christian right's goals and objectives, but really it was a boon for, for what was coming. The presidency of Bill Clinton may have been the wrong candidate choice in the eyes of most of the religious right, but it helped to consolidate their ranks. It helped to consolidate their objectives and, and organizations for battle throughout that decades of the 90s. If there was any doubt before about a gap between Republicans and Christian right conservatives, well, that, that doubt and that gap was removed now. Under President Bill Clinton, for the decade of the 90s and into the foreseeable future, the the Christian right, Republicans and conservatives, they were all one in the same thing. Jerry Falwell's moral majority, they lost a little bit of ground in the late 80s due to a series of sex scandals that were taking place among a lot of the televangelists who identified with the moral majority during that time period. But Falwell's role... And his position was quickly replaced remember pat robertson he he literally leveraged the growing influence that he had gained in his failed 1988 presidential campaign to start what came to be known as the christian coalition of america what he did he he literally took the mailing list of his presidential campaign and he converted that into the basis for a new lobbyist organization the christian coalition now the christian coalition was kind of like Falwell's moral majority on steroids. They weren't just vocal on Christian priorities and issues. They were were organized with a legitimate political campaign. That was what they looked like.
1: The first sign of significant loss of liberty in any country is the attack against orthodox religious people. Will the Christians of this nation sit idly by and do nothing while those who are pursuing an agenda for chaos destroy the very values that gave birth to this nation founded on biblical principles? Now is the time. Now is the time to bring this country back to those founding principles. Join the Christian Coalition and join the battle to protect your community and this nation. When you do, We'll send you Religious Rights Watch, our monthly newsletter monitoring the ongoing battle lines of bigotry against Christians. Christian American, the official newsletter of the Christian Coalition, will keep you abreast of critical topics. And Pat Robertson's perspective provides you with Pat's personal insights on national and international politics, economics, and events which are fulfilling biblical prophecy. Your membership card and lapel pin will identify you as a member of the coalition, ready with others in your area to stand up and let your voice be heard. Please join now. Together, we can win.
0: The Christian Coalition had set up offices in 49 out of the 50 U.S. states. And from those offices, they would impact U.S. politics at both the grassroots level, state levels, and all the way up through to the national level. Voter guides were distributed every election to voters so they could see which candidates, which issues were in line with Christian, official Christian perspectives as defined by the, the Christian coalition. Now, critics were complaining that the voter guides that the CCA was distributing, those, they were a joke because they were advertised as non-partisan voter guides, but unsurprisingly, they always su- seemed to support the Republican candidates. Almost 100% of the time, these voter guides were saying, vote Republican. Well the IRS also set its sights on the Christian coalition because the organization, it was set up as a nonprofit social welfare welfare organization, a, a charity, so all its donors could receive tax exempt status by supporting the Christian coalition. Well the IRS argued that the CCA was not providing a social welfare benefit but was instead engaging in political activity and so it was it was disqualifying that political activity disqualified it for tax-exempt status so this huge court struggle ensued between the two sides and pat robertson used his show the 700 club on christian broadcasting network he used the the show to frame this battle with the irs as religious discrimination in the end the cca won the day but not until there had been quite a bit of battle. And really that battle kind of drummed up more support for the CCA. Not long after founding the the Christian Coalition of America, the CCA, Pat Robertson, he brought in this rising star within uh, conservative circles. His name was Ralph Reed. And Ralph Reed is going to head up the activities of this organization, the CCA, the Christian Coalition of America. Now, more than anyone else, Ralph Reed would take the CCA to the next level, now, Reed's one of those characters who's loved by his supporters and utterly hated by his opponents. His, his background was conservative politics. His, you know, he followed that with a little bit more conservative politics and then a little more conservative politics on top of that just to be safe. He deliberately sought to portray this good guy, soft Christian man to the public, but behind the scenes, this guy, Ralph Reed, was a ruthless politician and a lobbyist. He talked about guerrilla politics and putting his enemies, his political enemies in body bags behind closed doors. In 1995, he was featured on the cover of uh, Time magazine, and the headline read, The Right Hand of God. And this story within Time Magazine depicted Ralph Reed's ruthless efforts and tactics to lobby for the religious right and Republican issues in the national government. By 1997, thanks to Ralph Reed, Fortune Magazine listed the CCA, the Christian Coalition of America, as one of the top seven most powerful political organizations in the nation. And some even thought that that top seven ranking might have been an understatement.
1: Christian Coalition Executive Director, Ralph Reed.
2: We felt that with the roughly 1,900,000 households that Pat Robertson came out of his presidential campaign with on computer tape, about 175,000 of those identified as activists and prime donors, that there was a built-in base to build a new pro-family Christian organization in this country. The question is, how will we accomplish it? And that's where we get to this five-fold strategy. It's a five-fold strategy that if we execute this in the coming ten years, we will be the most powerful political force in American politics. The first is a grassroots strategy. We're going to have the nation divided up into seven, seven seven-state regions. And in each of those regions, we're going to have a full-time, paid, trained, professional regional director. They will be responsible for training activists in their region, interfacing with candidates at the local, state, and federal level, and mobilizing people at the grassroots. Each of those regional directors in each of those seven states will have 10 top counties, targets, where they have to organize down into the precincts by the next election. Organized into precincts with precinct captains and then block captains. Second aspect of the grassroots strategy is one that I've already touched on and that's the leadership schools we're going to put literally millions of dollars into the field to teach people second uh, leg of this strategy is a lobby strategy once you've built that grassroots organization then what do you do with it the answer is you mobilize it to influence public policy and so what we're going to do is have a full-time lobbying presence in washington by the middle of 1991 with a fully staffed lobbyist who will track legislation and keep our people updated And then we will have either a part-time or full-time pro-family lobbyist in as many state capitals as we can organize. Third aspect of this I think is very important, and that's a media strategy. The mistake that we made in the 80s was in allowing the media to filter our message through television and newspapers so that the only thing the American people found out about who we were and what we stood for was what the media said we were. So through the media, we have a sophisticated program of radio and television. We're gonna be running 60 and 120 second spots on the Christian Coalition, on 309 radio stations around the nation. And in addition to that, we'll be doing issue spots on national cable television. We'll also be doing billboards, and we will be doing full page ads in national newspapers. We're gonna be spending about a quarter of a million dollars a year on media so that the message that people get about the Christian Coalition and who we are is what we want them to get instead of what the media wants us to get. Fourthly, we have a legal strategy. This battle, in addition to being fought in the airwaves and in the halls of Congress, will be fought in the courtrooms. In fact, in many cases, it's a natural flow. You get a bill passed, ACLU goes in and sues over it, and then you end up in court. And then finally, and really most importantly, it's a strategy of prayer. You know as good as it sounds if it's our plan and not god's plan it's not going to work and you've got to always as david saw it when he went into battle against the philistines you've got to always get down on your face before god and say lord do you want me to go up into battle or not and if you do how do you want me to and i believe that if we carry this five-fold strategy out with diligence and with effectiveness I think that we will be the most powerful political force in the nation by the end of this decade.
0: These were the years of enormous growth in power and in influence for the religious right. The Christian coalition may have been at the head of the political issues, but behind them there were others growing in influence and power throughout the country. The, The Promise Keeper organization, they were issuing challenges to Christian men throughout the nation and calling them to rise up to their proper role in the home. The challenge to biblical manhood on one side of the coin, by the Promise Keepers, was an attack on liberal issues of feminism and challenges to traditional family values on the other side of the coin, right? Dr. James Dobson, and focus on the family, they were kind of becoming the unofficial think tank of the Christian right, and so they would provide the science, the data, and other studies to support family values and Christian right positions at the polling stations. Meanwhile, across the country, churches and their leaders were becoming more and more political in their tone and message. We heard a clip from Jerry Falwell in an earlier episode of how Christians and leaders had tried to stay away from and tried to stay out of politics ever since the days of Prohibition. Well, that day and that age was over. By the mid-90s, being a Christian, being a pastor and a church leader, it meant having a strong, vocal, and bold political opinion, as well as political voice. And that voice, it was almost always Republican. In several incidents throughout that decade, uh, in, in both the 90s and into the early 2000s, pastors actually told their congregations which candidate they needed to vote for. In 2004, there was this big uproar when a Baptist church in North Carolina told the congregation that anyone who voted for John Kerry should either leave the church or repent. Now the really crazy part was that they actually did it. Nine church members who voted for Kerry at this Baptist church in North Carolina and refused to repent for it, they were kicked out of the church. Once again, laws and policies. They weren't necessarily changing that much throughout this time period, but the nation was changing, the electorate was changing, and thanks to all these efforts among the religious right, the Congress itself was changing. More and more representatives in the Congress and in the Senate, they were arriving to office with the support and blessings of the organizations all these different organizations and support systems of the religious right well along with that support came a degree of obligation like any lobbyist group if the religious right got to the elected officials if they got them elected to office well that lobbyist group the christian right they expected the election the uh, the elected official to follow their policy positions once they were in office the thing is they weren't just policy positions and that's the problem these were the policies and positions of God Almighty. They were infused with a righteousness and with biblical authority. Now, I say that with a certain degree of hyperbole, but that's really what it all boiled down to when you when you think about it. These policies and values weren't just about what would be most productive, what would be most, most effective for the government. It was about right and wrong, good and evil. So because of this, there's a certain degree of abandon that people who were really bought into the ways of the religious right could take in support of those ways. The battle of the religious right was seen really most fully manifested in the Republican Congress. Newt Gingrich and a new Republican majority arrived not only because of the religious right, but they did play a great role, and a partnership was set between the two, kind of by default. That partnership saw itself practically at war at war in this battle for good and evil between the ways of god the church family values on the religious right side and the ways of evil liberalism humanism and wrong on the other side which was represented by the democratic president bill clinton so you come to corruption scandals now corruption investigations had become a tool of political jousting between the president and the congress ever since nixon resigned in the watergate scandal. Ronald Reagan had his own scandals and corruption investigations initiated by a Democratic Congress. Had George H.W. Bush served more than one term, he no doubt would have fallen victim to these tactics as well. Well, in the 90s, the Republican Congress took this to a whole new level against President Clinton. The pattern set at that time has really continued all the way to the present. This is really a large part of the polarization between the president and the Congress today, kind of built up during the 90s. Most of the scandals that the Republican Congress was seeking to chase Bill Clinton for had more to do with stuff that had occurred even before he was president. Special prosecutors were set up to investigate the president, to investigate First Lady Hillary Clinton and and their whole staff. Millions of dollars in man hours were put into these efforts with hardly anything to show for it all. Well, the thing that tripped up President Clinton, the thing that tripped him up and what he became famous for, wasn't really the scandals and the corruption that was being investigated. It was a lie, he told in one of the depositions for the scandal. In the deposition, a sca- uh, question was asked about a White House intern. And President Clinton explained that he had not had sexual relations with her, famously described, said, answered it that way. Now, that sounds like a passing subduct to a bigger issue being investigated, except for the fact that President Clinton was lying.
1: Indeed, I did have a relationship with Ms. Lewinsky that was not appropriate. In fact, it was wrong. It constituted a critical lapse in judgment and a personal failure on my part, for which I am solely and completely responsible."
0: So the Clinton-Lewinsky scandal became one of the biggest stories of the decade and one of the biggest actions yet to really degrading the respect and dignity of the office of the president. And, and the court hearings. i just put a sub-note or, or a little little piece of that there because it's just… Well, frankly, it's just too family unfriendly to be putting on the podcast, according to the standards I try to abide by here. But if you listen to the actual hearing and the reports here, and if there's videos of it on YouTube, and the court hearings on this issue, you can almost sense the glee and the special prosecutor's questions as the president of the United States is forced to answer all manner of personal questions before a television camera. But of course, you know, the other side of that is President Clinton did put himself there. Well, the president would end up being impeached by the House of Representatives and then acquitted by the Senate. The scandal, though, it serves as a blemish to his presidency and American history to this day. But it was also a key event in the history of the religious right. The men and women who voted for impeachment of the president, who pushed the special prosecutor to go after him on these issues, they were those who supported and were supported by the religious right. They didn't do it just because they were being told to do so by the Christian right lobbyist groups. They did it because it was the perfect example of this wicked liberalism run amok. This was the example that proved the liberals were a bunch of hedonists who would never support family values. The religious right, therefore, had to to protect the sanctity of marriage and of America. This was the peak of influence for the religious right. These were, they were literally able to impeach a president. And he only barely escaped total annihilation with a slight majority vote for acquittal. So the celebration and self-righteousness seemed to swell in the party of the religious right. Republicans lorded this thing over Clinton and the Democrats. They, along with the religious right, owned, they now owned the moral high ground in america because certainly president clinton was nowhere near that high ground and this is where it ends from where i see it this is where the story of the rise of the religious right becomes well it comes to an end because this is where they got too big for their britches they went too far it's where they became vulnerable and collapsed under the weight of their own hubris the religious right had grown in less than half a century from getting In God We Trust established as the national motto, fighting for prayer in school and against abortion, and now they had threatened a president within an inch of his political life. He would never be able to talk down on the religious right or their voters again. His, his policies would be paralyzed from the liberal extremism he might have sought after that for the duration of his term as president. This was political success, but in my opinion, it was the end of the religious right, because within a decade's time, the fraudulence of the religious right was put on full display. The senators and the representatives who had pushed so hard for impeachment and standards of integrity against the president in the name of Christian and family values, they began, they began being forced from office themselves. One by one over the next decade, one senator and congressman after another was forced from office due to sex scandals and finance scandals. Newt Gingrich, who pushed so hard on the president's sex scandal, saw his own marriage dissolve when he was caught in his own affair with his own staff member. Other senators who had preached the family values of the religious right were caught up in affairs with interns and others. Dennis Hastert, who became the the actual Republican Speaker of the House in '99, most recently has admitted to being a child molester in his younger, younger days. It wasn't Pat Robertson and the Christian Coalition, but it was the people who they had endorsed. It was the representatives who they said stood for family values and the Christian right. It was those who had self righteously condemned Bill Clinton in delight and who next fell under the weight of their own hypocrisy. This was the end of the religious right. We just didn't know it at the time. They remained powerful for another 10 years or so in American politics, but they had lost the moral legitimacy that they had once preached. They weren't trusted like they were before. When George W. Bush was elected president in 2000, he was the poster boy for everything Christian and everything the religious right ever wanted in a president.
2: Well, if they don't know, it's going to be hard to explain. Um, When you turn your heart and your life over to Christ, when you accept Christ as the Savior, it changes your heart and changes your life. And that's what happened to me.
0: George W. Bush was the first born-again president since Jimmy Carter. But now we had a president who wasn't only born again, but was also on the right side of the political issues. This was supposed to be the beginning of a new day for Christian America. This was going to be where Christian America itself was reborn and back where it started in the '50s. In 2000, Bush got 68% of the white evangelical vote in America. That's a huge number. And it represented about 23% of the total electorate in an election that was literally the closest and most contested presidential election in history to date. In 2004, that number of white evangelical voters who supported President Bush rose to 78%. So for the first time in 2000 and 2004, since its inception, the religious right could say they literally determined who would be the president of the United States. Liberals were freaking out during this time period. I read a book right around that time, maybe 2002, 2003, it may have been 2005, but it was called American Theocracy. And this book talked about how dangerous it was for Bush to talk so much about his faith and how much power the religious right had. Was America going the way of Iran and other religious theocracies where pastors and church leaders determined the future of the country and its policies? What we were soon to find out, though, is that although George W. Bush was in power, and although he represented the fulfillment of almost everything a member of the religious right could want, he was really just the final flex of muscle power for the group, for the cause. When America went to war in 2003, the values of conservative and uh, and religious right politics they were really greatly strained when we ended up learning that the whole war had been built on a lie. As the years went by and, and America felt the weight of two unending wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, along with a failing, collapsing, nearly collapsing economy, the religious right was seen as powerless to really fight against these things. Being at the top of the political mountain proved more than the religious right could really handle. The biggest problem for the religious right, though, wasn't the war or the economy. It was the lack of substance in their positions. They talked the big talk of righteousness and family values, but when they came to to power, they acted like everyone else in those positions of power. The religious rights congressmen got swallowed up in sex and corruption scandals as easily as the the liberal congressmen did. The religious right was backing wars that were built on lies and resulting in the deaths of thousands of Americans and hundreds of thousands of Afghans and Iraqis. Did God not care for the lives of those people too? Did God only care about Americans and American power? So the Christian right's claim of values and faith and and righteousness, they were beginning to prove hollow and just a bunch of talk without real life and substance behind them. So when President Bush left office and President Obama came in, the voice of the religious right no longer had the weight that it once did. And that wasn't because of the president. That wasn't because that we now had a democratic president. It was because the religious right was increasingly being taken less and less seriously. When members of the religious right spoke out against LGBT and gay marriage, those who grew up in the time period of the culture wars had to ask, what gives you the right to say what's right or wrong? The public representatives of the Christian right in Congress had proven just as corrupt as the liberals and as Bill Clinton was. When the Christian right spoke out against Obamacare because it would require Christians to fund abortions, once again, they weren't trusted. They had supported a war that was destroying lives on both sides of the ocean. There was no integrity left in their words. There was no trust left for the Christian right. The very voices who claimed to speak for God and His ways, His word, His values, were seen to be no better than the liberal establishment all around them. Why should they be trusted? It is about who we are. It is about what we believe and what we stand
1: for as Americans. There is a religious war going on
0: in this country. It is a cultural war as critical to the kind of nation we shall be as the Cold War itself, for this war is for the soul of America.
1: The Bible says in 1 Peter 2:17: honor all men, fear God honor the king and the king referred to was the roman emperor since our nation is a republic and not a monarchy this scripture could read honor the nation The problem is not education, the problem is not poverty, the problem is not race, the problem is the breakdown of moral values in American life. And the criminal justice system can't respond. And so I know that you can't endorse me, but I only brought that up because I want you to know that I endorse you and what you are doing. Our long national nightmare is over. we got the religious right so involved that we may have gone too far. The ethical and moral principles of the Judeo-Christian faith and the God of that tradition are found throughout the
2: Declaration of Independence. When you turn your heart and your life over to Christ, when you accept Christ as the Savior, it changes your heart, it changes your life.
1: And if we're going to bring people together, as we must bring them together, if we're going to have peace in the world, if our young people are going to have a fulfillment beyond simply those material things, they must turn to those great spiritual sources that have made America the great country that it is. This is my country. This is our country. Let the world know today that the majority of us still proudly sing, My country, tis of thee, sweet land of liberty.
0: So that's the story of the history of the religious right. Will it continue as a political force? Well, it certainly hasn't in 2016. Like I said, though, I think the end came a long time before this year. I did want to close out this series, though, with some final thoughts about Christians and people of faith in politics. These are just some thoughts to consider as we go forward and we examine our own lives. I know a lot of people who listen to this podcast would consider themselves members of the religious right. Or or maybe, like me, you consider yourselves former members of the Christian right. So these are some thoughts to consider. And maybe you'll agree with me, maybe not. I'd love to hear some feedback in the comments section there at the website. But here's some thoughts to consider. First off, I think the Christian right started out as a good thing. All right? I want to make sure that that's clear, because I think it was good, honest, Bible-believing people who wanted the best for their families, wanted the best for their communities and their country. But somewhere along the way, the waters got muddled. Political wins and victories became more important than biblical values and principles. I remember seeing a sign in 2002, maybe 2004, one of those congressional elections, in the early part of the decade. This guy was running for state office, and he had an Ithkus fish on all his campaign posters, you know, the little design of the ichthys fish. Well, that was a symbol from the early days of the church when Christians lived under persecution. It was a, a secret code to let people know who the Christians were, where they lived, back in the early days of the church, the Roman Empire. Well, now in the 21st century, it was a secret code to let people know who the Christian candidate was. And something about that just bothered me. After all the scandals and culture wars of the 90s, Was this all he had to do to get my vote? I mean, he just had to know the secret code so I would trust his values and trust that he would represent what was important to me in office. That's when I first started reconsidering my own politics, my own involvement with the Christian right. Really, it goes deeper than that, though. There is and there must be a tension that exists for Christians and the politics of the world around them. I think we get into some trouble when this tension starts to fade. Democracy itself is founded upon the popular voice. Well, Jesus said that people would hate us for our beliefs and because we follow him. So that's a pretty wide gap to bridge. When our way starts getting too popular, that's probably a good sign that we're drifting away from the real purposes of God and the message of Christ. And I don't mean to say that we should be seeking to be contrarian or contrarian on everything. But we should be seeking what the Bible says, and in this world, in this system of thought and self-interest, that is, on the norm, going to make us quite unpopular. The Old Testament prophets are good examples of this. Guys like Jeremiah, he recognized what the will and purposes of God were in his country. They weren't popular. The political and religious establishment all opposed him, but God said he was right. There's verses where it talks about the religious leaders even coming up and slapping him on the face because they said, it's wrong what you're saying about the nation. But he was right, after all. Even Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah, when he he got too close to the king and started holding his nationalism above his perspective of the will of God, he realized he had become a prophet of unclean lips, is what the Bible says. So our success in this world isn't defined by who wins the vote. Our success in this world is defined by the voice of God saying, well done. He's not moved by elections. I guess I should say if our faith or our God is moved by the elections, then we serve a pretty weak God. And we might need to reconsider that, at least the posture of our faith in that circumstance. In the end, I think we need to get back to where the Christian right really got started. We need to be less focused on winning and more focused on being. Who cares if prayer isn't allowed in school? My family's still going to pray. Who cares who wins the election? My family will still build and live according to the Word of God. Who cares what issues advance in the political sphere? Me and my house are going to serve the Lord. So we can continue to engage in politics. We should be educated. We should be responsible and we should vote. But our standards, our values, our confidence doesn't come from these outcomes. They come from the voice of God and a certain peace and knowing that when He looks upon our lives, when He looks upon our homes, He's pleased. Thanks for listening to The End of History with JB Shreve. Check out more episodes at iTunes and wherever you download quality podcasts. Join us online at theendofhistory.net for articles and essays from The End of History. Follow JB on Twitter at JB underscore Shreve. The End of History is produced by Windmill Media.